Greetings, whale lovers, tree huggers, and fans of science-based facts and fact-based reality. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Larian Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. Everyone knows David Suzuki, the environmentalist, but not many people have met David Suzuki, the comedian. A million or so years ago, I was working on a TV special with my comedy duo, Local Anxiety. We wanted to create the world's first eco-comedy, and that meant one thing. We needed David Suzuki. Because our routine was that my partner, Kevin Crofton, was a rabid right-winger who never met a tree he didn't want to cut or a mountain he wouldn't frack, his signature song was Shoot the Spotted Owl. I played a tree-hugging hippie. My theme song, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm sorry. And my idol was David Suzuki. Suzuki agreed to be in the special, and because truth is stranger than fiction, when we compared schedules, we were both working on jobs in Toronto at the same time, so we shot a scene in a park across from the CBC building. He was hilarious. And when I interviewed the only living hero who made the top five on the CBC series The Greatest Canadian, he was still pretty funny, especially when he started talking shit about Vancouver. Literally. And I was shocked and inspired that Suzuki seemed more passionate about saving the planet than ever. We talked about everything from fake news to our very real climate crisis, and of course, how it affects our oceans and orcas. But that isn't why I wanted David Suzuki as my first guest on the Scanna podcast. Ten years ago, I launched my forestry podcast series, The Green Chain, with an interview with his daughter, Severin. So it seemed perfect to launch this new series with the senior Suzuki. Full disclosure, my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available at bookstores everywhere and now available in audio at audible.com, recorded by me, is published by Greystone and the David Suzuki Foundation. So his name is in my book, along with all the information on how to support the work and the people he's inspired. This episode is brought to you by the National Observer. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I'm worried there isn't enough great environmental coverage out there in the world today. National Observer's helping with that. Also, our patrons who are making this happen through Patreon.com, like Ray Arden, Trevor Strong, Diane Wild, and Jess Edwards. Don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The one thing he got right was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. There's a question that I'm just dying to ask you. As a lifelong educator, how are you dealing with this world of alternative facts? I'm crushed. I'm absolutely crushed. I began my career in television in 1962. 62. I did my first eight-part uh, eight series on genetics. And I, I started, I, I was a hotshot scientist, man. I was going to make my reputation in genetics. And I realized when I came back to Canada how scientifically illiterate the average person was. And I felt, how can you make big decisions on your life if you're not scientifically literate? You know, the most powerful factors shaping our lives today are science. Science when applied by industry, medicine, and the military. And so I began this, I accepted this 
invitation to do a television program, never imagining it would become a full-time occupation, because I felt that with the better, more and better information, people will make better decisions. And that's been the thrust of all of my career in the electronic media. Provide people with the best scientific information possible before they start making important decisions. And, you know, that was radically affected, that faith in information and decisions when I began to see with the enormous access to information through the internet, now people with just a cell phone have access to virtually, you know, every book ever written. It's amazing the access to information. And what I discovered was it doesn't work that way because now people are, are illiterate in how to use information. And what people do is they dig through the pile of stuff available till they find something that confirms what they already believe. You want to believe that God created the earth in six days? Hell, there are hundreds of websites telling you that. You want to believe in pyramid power or Bermuda Triangles or that climate change is a hoax? There are dozens of websites. And so what I find now is People don't bother trying to get information to really inform themselves. They look for information that they can cherry pick that just proves what they already believe. And that's a horrifying situation. So that I realize now that you have to also have uh, an audience that is literate and understands that you have to assess the information, who is giving this, who's paying for this information. People have to be much more uh, responsible in how they select information. But if we live in a world of alternate truth, then, I, then we really have entered an or Orwellian world of 1984, where you can tell people literally 2 plus 2 equals 5, and people will believe it. And we're at that point now. We're going to launch an investigation to find out, and then the next time, and, and I will say this, of those votes cast, none of them come to me. None of them come to me. I mean, you only have to look at the Trump, the Trump uh, uh, use of uh, facts. Thousands of people, thousands of Muslims cheered when, on 9-11. There's absolutely no evidence that that happened. Millions of people voted that were illegal. Absolutely no evidence. But repeat the lie over and over again. And that's why I was stunned when right here in Canada you have Christy Clark saying, oh, the NDP hacked into our, hacked into our, our website or our, our um, whatever, wherever they hide their stuff. And then not only made this very serious allegation, but then continued to churn the same thing out and out until after a week she finally had to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. But, I mean, I'm shocked that she was applying exactly the kind of tactics that Trump has done. And is this the kind of world that we've come to? It's, it's a very, very distressing time. I mean, I've found it's really thrown me as a writer. I don't know what, I've always written with the idea that I'm going to persuade people that if I put out the right evidence yeah. that, that it'll change people's minds or open their minds. Exactly. And it's 
horrifying to me. I can't remember the exact quote from Brexit, but one of the anti-Brexit campaigners went, we've had enough of the experts. <laughs> yeah. Like, how did experts become a pejorative? Yeah, exactly. The word elite now, you know, uh, what's her name, this... Uh, the uh, medical doctor that's running for the Conservatives, Kelly Leach, throws out the word elite. Well, why is it we revel in elite athletes, elite musicians, I would hope elite scholars, and yet somehow the word elite has become a pejorative. It doesn't make any sense to me. And when elite informa uh, information from elite people means experts, we're really in a pretty sad state. The fact that a medical doctor is distancing herself from smart people is just kind of stunning. I've got 60, you know, letters after my name, but you know, don't call me smart because smart means I can't get elected. Someone once said, well, dumb people have to be re represented as well. Is there anything that you've thought of that we can do to cut through the noise? Well, it's, it's very, very difficult. The way that I've approached it now you know, I've been battling with uh, CEOs and company presidents and all kinds of people. And before I go into battle, I'll often be told, look, he's a really decent guy. He goes to church every Sunday, loves his kids. He takes them camping, loves nature. You know, he's a good person. And it's true. These people I meet, they're not evil monsters. But the problem is... They play within uh, their sphere, whether it's politics, economics, religion. They play within a sphere that is constrained by the basic ground rules of that sphere. So uh, three years ago, I got a call from a president or CEO of one of the largest companies in the tar sands of Alberta. I was surprised. Can I come and talk to you? I said, sure. I'm not into fighting. I don't see the point in fighting. Come down. Next day, showed up at our door here. You know, and I said, thank you for coming. I'm honored and blah, blah, blah. And I said, but before you come through this door, I want you to do me one favor. I want you to leave your identity as a CEO of an oil company outside. I said, I want you to come in and, and talk man to man, human being to human being. Because quite frankly, I don't see the point of even talking if we don't begin from a platform of agreement. I mean, if we don't have a fundamental foundation of agreement, then we're all over the bloody map. Well, he wasn't very happy because he had come down as a CEO of an oil company somehow to talk to me. But to his credit, he came through the door. So I sat him down. I said, look, I know this is not what you expected, but let me explain where I'm coming from. I said, we live in a world that is shaped and constrained by laws of nature. And there's nothing we can do about that. We have to live within those laws. Said physics informs us that you can't build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. That's the limit, and we accept that. The law of gravity, if you trip on a rock, you're gonna fall on your face. That's gravity. First and second laws of thermodynamics mean you can't build a perpetual motion machine. And only science fiction writers will tell you about not falling within those laws. Those are laws dictated to us by the way the universe is constructed. Chemistry, it's the same. The atomic properties of the elements determine melting points and boiling points and all of the properties of atoms that will tell you which ones you can react and what kind of molecules you can make, diffusion constants, reaction rates. All of that dictates 
what we can or cannot do. And we live with that. Biology, it's the same. Every species has a maximum number that can be sustained indefinitely. That's dictated by the carrying capacity of an ecosystem or, or a habitat. Exceed that number and your population will crash. Humans, are, like rats, are different. We're not confined to a specific habitat. But the biosphere is the zone where we occupy. The biosphere is fixed. It can't grow. And there are limits to how many humans can be sustained indefinitely. It's a function of number and consumption per person. And I said, you know, the most profound thing biology tells us is you and I, we're animals. And as animals, that determines what our fundamental needs are. I said, what do you think is the most important thing all human beings need? And instead of giving me the answer like any child would, he went, well, uh, and I could see he's thinking money, job. <laughs> I said, Mr. CEO, if you don't have air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe polluted air, you're sick. So wouldn't you agree the highest priority of all human beings on earth is to protect clean air. And then I said, you and I, we're over 60% water by weight. We're basically this huge blob of water, so with enough thickener added, we don't dribble away on the floor, but we leak water. And because we leak water, if you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. Drink polluted water, you're sick. So couldn't you put clean water with clean air as a highest priority. And then I said, you know, some of us can last a lot longer, but four to six weeks without food, you die. Most of the food is grown in the soil. So wouldn't you put clean food and soil up with clean water and clean air? And then I said, all of the energy in your body and mind that we use to move and grow and do work and reproduce, all of that energy is sunlight. Sunlight captured by plants through photosynthesis, converted into chemical energy, and we then eat the plants or the animals that eat the plants, and we store it in our bodies. So photosynthesis is like clean soil and food, clean water and clean air. I said, surely that's the foundation of the way all humans live and must be the highest priority to protect. And the miracle of life on this earth is that those four things that I've just outlined, with, which native people everywhere call the four sacred elements, earth, air, fire, and water, those are cleansed or created or regenerated by life. It's life that creates the oxygen-rich atmosphere. It's life that filters the water. In Vancouver, we get our water from three watersheds surrounded by old-growth rainforest, and the forest filters the water for us. Soil that we grow our food on is created by life. So I said, and, and of course, all of the energy is through plant photosynthesis. I said, Mr. CEO, if you would put those four sacred elements and biodiversity and agree with me, those are the fundamental needs that every human being should have and protect. I said, you shake hands with me on that and I will do everything I can to help you and your business. Now, what do you think he did? He couldn't shake hands with me. He could not shake hands because he knew damn well if he went back to his shareholders, he'd be fired in a flash. That's not his job. The constraints are, your job is to make us money. 
The more and the faster, the better. That's your job. And that's how you're going to be rewarded if you do that. And if you start talking about, oh, I had a discussion with Suzuki, and I think I agree that whatever we do, we can't mess with the air, the water, the soil, biodiversity, he would get fired in a flash. And so you realize this is a good man. He's a decent human being. He loves his family. He loves nature. And he is bound by the constraints of the game he's playing in. And so long, and this is what we find ourselves over and over again as environmentalists, we get in talking about an issue like climate change and we go, oh, well, you know, there's economic jobs will create, be created if we get into renewable energy and you'll save money by not using all of this expensive uh, uh, fossil fuel energy. We're playing in the same goddamn game and yet the rules are rigged so that we can't possibly win in a game that is dictated and constrained by economics. Economics is so fundamentally dysfunctional. You know what, if you say, uh, I'm gonna cut down this forest and, and, uh, uh, because I need the jobs and the money, and I say, yeah, but wait a minute, what about the uh, photosynthesis? I mean, you cut down those trees, you lose the ability to remove carbon dioxide, put oxygen back in. You know what economists say? That's an externality. That's not relevant. We're not talking about economics anymore. So the, the services that nature performs for us, all of the things, you know, pollination and photosynthesis and uh, flood prevention and erosion prevent, all of this stuff that nature does for us is dismissed by economics, economists, as irrelevant. Okay, so it's a rigged game, right? It's a rigged game. And we run around going, oh, well, don't cut that forest because uh, we could pick some berries and sell them and, and there are salel bushes over here and we'll do flower arrangement. What the hell? The game is rigged. Because the important reason we're fighting for these things ain't in the economy. And yet the economy, listen to the discussion about the pipelines in British Columbia. It's always, oh, there are all the benefits of $6 billion of, of investment and this many jobs. Nobody, uh, but, but when you talk about spills and the consequences of loss, it's only the, the native people and environmentalists that are saying, look, there are these other factors. But Christy Clark and all these business people, they dismiss that right away because it's not, they're not relevant. It's the economy that's dominating the pipeline. Unlike the previous government, not only am I approving them, but I'm standing up here in Alberta and in downtown Vancouver and saying I am approving these pipelines because it matters and I'm making a case for the oil sands. And the fact is that demonstrating to the world that we understand the responsibilities that come with resource development. I have repeatedly said uh, that, yes, the responsibility of uh, any Canadian Prime Minister is to get our resources to market, and yes, that includes uh, our oil sands, uh, 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 fossil fuels. I've also said that we need to do that in a responsible, sustainable way. That you cannot separate what's good for the environment and what's good for the economy.
since we're moving on to the pipeline, can you talk about what the pipeline means for the Southern Resident Orcas? I, you know, we can talk about that. I really think it's a mistake to talk that way at this point. We have a prime minister who made a commitment at Paris, and that was a very strong commitment. He said, yes, we will do everything we can to keep temperature rising above two degrees, preferably near 1.5 degrees. That's a big target. That's not an easy target. But once you say, yes, I make that commitment, what the hell is a talk about pipelines? We've got to shut those pipelines down. And the only time he said something where he was right on, when he said the oil sands will eventually have to be shut down, he was absolutely right. He got hammered by Alberta and all of these business people, and he backtracked on that. So we've got, to me, Canada has made the right commitment, and I give him all of the kudos and honor and respect for having gone to Paris only a few months after being elected and taken a strong stand. But now, God damn it, live up to what you promise. As a Canadian, I want my prime minister to make promises we will then live up to. And he's not doing anything. Pipelines should not be on the agenda. Rail expansion should not be on the agenda. Coal terminal expansion. We don't want any of that stuff. We want to get off fossil fuels, period. And then ask, where are the opportunities? So yeah, resident orcas, those things, are, they're all going to be wiped out. Now, our, our premier says, oh, but I'd put five conditions, including world-class world -class cleanup. Bullshit. There is no such thing. You know that most of that oil, when it's spilled, because it's bitumen, it's going to sink. But usually when oil spills, a lot of it evaporates, and then they try to get it to sink out of sight by spreading detergents all around to break up the blobs so that they'll sink down as separate uh, uh, entities. That is not what I call a cleanup. There is no such thing as a world-class cleanup. Well, a successful cleanup is what, 10%? I don't know how much they do clean up, but it's a tiny fraction of everything that's spilled. We want nature to clean it up. Just get, the, get it the hell out of the way so that we don't have to face it. Well, I mean, on your foundation website, you've talked about uh, just how toxic the northern residents are. Peter Ross talked about that. The most freaking toxic animals on the planet. How stunning is that to you? Or Toxic animals? How, how Toxic mammal, like that they are so full of toxic. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just our killer whales here. Everything up at the high up on the food chain is going to have biomagnified whatever is eaten down lower down. So this is why in the 1960s, North American women's breast milk was considered too toxic, toxic to feed, uh, feed the babies. And, and uh, you know, our orcas, they're going to be up there. And the belugas in the St. Lawrence, are you kidding? They're treated as hazardous material when they're disposed of. And so, you know, and it's, it's all interconnected now. You know, Vancouver has a problem with shit. There are over a million people down here, all shitting. What do you do with that stuff? Well, what we do with, they call them biosolids, is take them out into the Okanagan and dump them on the fields. Well, you know, you can use night soil in China when you have small amounts being applied to your fields. That's great, fertilizer. But when you now take this stuff that comes out of everybody's bottom, and you and I are loaded with dozens of toxic chemicals, and we're now going to concentrate that and put it on fields, that ain't the way to go. We've become just as toxic. Well, not just as toxic, but uh, we've also become very toxic. 
Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't. I don't, but I do remember when Severn, my daughter, I took her. We were, at that time, we were fighting for the Kutsumatine to be protected as a park. So I went up to the Kutz to do a film, and I took Severn with me on a sailboat. And we, after we did the film, we were coming out of the, uh, uh, out of the uh, uh, bay there, and a killer whale came up, and Sev was down, downstairs in the boat. I said, Sev, Sev, there's a killer whale. And the, the whale dived, and so she came running up, and we're watching and watching and watching. Finally, it emerges. And she was about nine at the time, and I said, Sev, there it is. There it is, Sev, 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 you know, expecting her to go hoop and holler. And I looked down and she's crying. I said, well, what's the matter, sweetheart? She said, Daddy, look how far it went on one breath of air. And we keep them at the aquarium in a tiny tub. Nine-year-old girl who, sorry, I can't, telling adults, you know, that it's wrong. I remember that. It's funny, when uh, Newman first set out to catch Moby Doll, mm. one of the, and the whale was missing, he started joking that the whale was psychic, that the, that the whales were psychic. Mm. Then, Rain, just the fun of it, asked Lance Barrett Leonard that, and he went, maybe. Mm. It, and then we keep hearing about different tales where Kim Balcom says whales saved his life. Alexander Morton has a story about whales saving her life. Have you ever had an encounter with the whales where you went, no. Okay. No, but I, because I just haven't spent enough time around them. But I think that, uh, you know, you, you hear story, talk to Paul Spong. I'm sure he'll tell you stories that, you know, they, they are, they're amazing creatures and we don't know anything. We have no idea what, uh, what there is about them. I, I, I just narrated today a film about the Mola Mola. Do you know what a Mola Mola is? No. It's called a sunfish. So these are these giant creatures. They get up to 2,000 kilograms. They're big. And they're in the more warmer waters. But now that the water's warming up here, they're coming up into Haida Gwaii and around. So the first time I ever saw one, it, it was looked like it was dead. It was lying on its side. And what they do is they lie on the side at the surface and absorb sun. And... Uh, I said, hey, let's go over and catch one. It, this is a small one. And so we, we motored over. As soon as we came, it just righted itself and went down. But I thought, an animal like that, it's got no tail on it. It's really a funny-looking creature. Everything must want to eat it. How the hell do you get that big and being so slow-moving, how the hell do you survive everything that wants to eat it? I don't even know if anyone's posed the question. I don't think we have a clue how, the, how a creature like that could survive. It's like a tree. You know, when you think about a tree, it's amazing. A seed falls, and wherever it falls, that's it. It can't jump up and say, this is a shitty place. I want to move to where there's more water or food. It's stuck. Sends its, its root down, and then on the basis of water, sunlight, and uh, and uh, carbon dioxide, it it survives and creates itself. 
Everything wants to eat a bloody tree when it's that big. Deer, raccoons, everything wants to eat it. How the hell did they survive? You know, it's, and now, only now we're beginning to realize, holy cow, those things have re, they've got defense mechanisms up the yin yang. I mean, if an insect drills into a tree, it starts telling the other trees, start putting out insecticide, I'm being attacked. They communicate through their roots and share resources with each other. I mean, we don't know shit. And we think that we're, we're going to manage the whole planet. And you say to a whale, they couldn't be psychic. Give me a break. What do you think that are, are the biggest threats right now facing the orcas facing our oceans? Well, us. And, you know, the oceans are a mess. Who would have ever imagined that the oceans that cover 70% of the planet could be so affected by us? It's the same argument that people use now. Oh, humans couldn't possibly be so big that we could affect the weather and climate for Christ. And we're just as insignificant. No, I'm sorry. Scientists are now saying this is the Anthropocene epoch, the time in geological history when we have become the major force affecting the physical, chemical, and biological properties of the planet on a geological scale. That's how powerful we've become through population, technology, consumption, the global economy. So the oceans are a mess. The simple thing is, with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, at the interface of the ocean and air, you get more carbon dissolving as carbonic acid. And so the pH of the oceans is dropping. And the thing you're, we're finding is that in nature, everything is very, very fine-tuned. You know, the temperature of the planet hasn't risen more than a degree, and yet all hell is already breaking loose. Temperature or pH of the ocean may be changing by 0.1, uh, and yet already we're seeing that uh, shellfish are having a, a hard time getting going. They can't deposit their shells. So you know, we're just the change in pH is having a huge effect. Then you realize, well, the oceans are being, uh, are the major um, storage engine for heat. So this is climate deniers love this. They say, well, in the last 10 years, temperature in the atmosphere hasn't climbed that much. Yeah, that's because the oceans are sucking up most of that heat. And when water heat warms, it expands. So sea level is going to rise. That means there are all kinds of shoreline uh, impacts of that. And of course, huge runoff from our unsustainable agricultural practices, nitrogen washing into the oceans. There are now dozens and dozens of, of uh, dead zones because of eutrophication where life can't exist. They're getting bigger and more numerous in every ocean on the planet. And then, of course, the big thing is the oceans are where all of our crap ends up, and you have plastic everywhere now, islands of plastic as big as, as the state of Texas. So you add all, and to say that, you know, we're overfishing and we're using crazy fruit fishing practices like dragging on the ocean bottom, the oceans are a mess. I love how you explained the importance of the elements to the CEO. How do you explain the importance of biodiversity? Do you have a, a way that you do that to people? Biodiversity is the source of life. First of all, First Nations people all over the world talk about the rest of, of life as our relatives. And we used to kind of say, oh, well, that's a nice 
kind of poetic way of, of saying it. Well, what genetics has confirmed is they're absolutely right. Every creature on the planet has, has a preponderance of genes identical to the ones you find in us because we're all evolved from the same original cell. When you regard the rest of life as your relative, surely you treat them with greater respect and care than if we regard them as just a resource or a commodity. And uh, so I think we have to re-embed ourselves in the natural world and realize that we are a part of this very complex community of organisms on whom our survival and well-being depends. If there were no plants on Earth, we wouldn't be here, period. Because, of course, oxygen is a very reactive compound. The minute there's oxygen, it reacts. It oxidizes. It rusts things. And so there, without life, without green things, there's no oxygen in the atmosphere. And as I told you, we get our water because life is what filters that water. And soil, you know, uh, the, the, the movie The Martian, you know, where Matt Damon is stranded on Mars, but he's only got a, a year's supply of potatoes and he needs to stretch it to four. There's lots of dust and sand and clay on Mars. Guess what? There's no soil because soil is created by life. Without life, you got no nothing to grow life on. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. So what Matt Damon had to do was poop in every hole that he put into the ground. So without life, the rest of creation, we're not here. It's to, you know, just take pollinators, for example. Without pollination, terrestrial ecosystems around the world will collapse. And do we think we could survive that? I don't think so. So um, why is the, and of course, the, the major carbon sink for carbon dioxide are all the green things. And we're cutting down our forests at an astro astronomical rate. Who needs biodiversity? We do. We do. Without, without the rest of creation, we, we can't exist. When you talk about the, the other creatures being our relatives, do you think there's like a legal way into this? Do you think personhood's a solution? Like, do you think that there's a way to change the courts? Ah, or? yeah, yeah. Well, the courts, of course, are all a, a human creation, a human construct. I think that the challenge that we face, the major challenge today, is the human mind. The human mind that, that edits the information coming in through our senses into a value and belief system that is laid down when we're very young. So that issues of gender, issues of religion, issues of socioeconomic class experiences all shape the way our brains ultimately see the world. So ask a man, ask a woman to talk about love or family 
or commitment, you'll get very different answers. You know, I was thinking about it. If you talk to a Palestinian and an Israeli about Jerusalem, you'd get very, very different uh, different responses. The way we see the world is shaped by a brain that is formed both genetically and by early life experiences. And so <clears throat> if you grow up believing that we humans are somehow special, created by God in his or her image, and with the rest of creation as an opportunity, go forth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have uh, dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and all, all that stuff, that will shape the way you look at the world. And so I think the challenge is that we have to move from an anthropocentric view where we're at the center of the action, everything is around us, to a biocentric point of view where we recognize we exist within a very complex web of life and physical factors and um, that we have, because our, our existence is so heavily interconnected, we have a responsibility then to protect that web of, of living things because we're caught up in that. Any thoughts on how we get to that biocentric view? I heard a wonderful story from a friend who I was going to interview who said their parents grew up near your parents or something and that your dad taught them about the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they always remembered that, that it was like your dad who could have inspired them. And I thought, one of the things that to me has made you iconic, one of the greatest Canadians and all those things, has always been that you've reached out to kids. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I made when we started the foundation in 1990, uh, people began to say right away, we've got to get into schools. Now, we set up the foundation in 1990 because the World Watch Institute in the United States had said, this is the turnaround decade. We've got 10 years. If we don't turn it around, we're toast. And so I said, every dollar we spend has got to go out the door. We, we have 10 years to do it. I never imagined 26 years later or 27 years now, we'd be sitting around still discussing the same goddamn issues. But that was what drove me. And I said, to the people saying we got to get in the schools. We don't have time. I said, we don't have time for them to replace us. We've got to focus on where the power and the action is. Big mistake. Big mistake for two reasons. I, I should never have got caught up in the idea that there was a 10-year window. We have no idea how, how big that window is. But two, adults, after they've gone to university, they get a job, they get married, they buy a house, and environmentalists come along and say, you got to change your way. They get pissed off. And they've invested a lot of effort to get to where they are and then be told you've got to change your life lifestyle they're not going to buy that but they have one achilles heel and that is their kids they love their kids so children i realize are a very important vehicle for getting the adults with the power to change so that was my big mistake which fortunately people overrode me a few years into the foundation. So we do spend, well, I mean, uh, a third of the books I've written have been for children. And the challenge of involving children is getting heavier and heavier. The reason is this kind of stuff that we see here. It's far more seductive for a child to sit there doing this or in front of, or playing video games than it is 
to get outside. Oh, it's raining. It's, uh, it's snowing. It's cold. It's, and, uh, I, I'm, I really, uh, we, the Toronto office has spent a lot of time trying to get kids outside. And they say that the average child in Canada today spends less than 10 minutes a day outside and more than six hours a day in front of a screen. And so, and I was in Montreal a couple of years ago and this guy said, you got to see this VR thing, virtual reality thing. You got to see it. It's... So I put it on and it was just, oh my God. I said, I hope this stuff fails. It's so overwhelming that it's better than the real world. He took me down and I dove in a, in a pod of whales. And, you know, I just by tilting my head or moving like this, I could dive under, like, you can't do that in the real world. Virtual reality is better than the real world. I can have a gunfight with someone and lose and live to fight another day or have a car race and crash and walk away or have kinky sex and nobody will catch me. I mean, virtual reality becomes better than the real world. And so I think that with these new things that are coming up, it's just gonna, just gonna suck kids in. Why the hell go outside when I can just sit there having these amazing experiences? And this, this is really the challenge. And the kids, I used to, when my kids were young, I used to take them on a Saturday uh, nature hike every weekend. And I can't, and they'd bring their friends. And I can't tell you how often their friends would go, I'm bored. I, you know, is there something to do? I'm bored. Like, they, they are hooked on getting so many jolts per minute that going out is a challenge because it's boring. So I think there are all of these impediments that are, are coming at us now that are just leading us further and, and further away from the world out, outside. I was thinking of trying to write an essay, you know, we, are exquisitely endowed with these organs, our eyes and our ears and our, our nose, and, and we can actually improve on them by allowing us to see in invisible wavelengths and hear beyond what the human ear, you know, so we can use technology to increase our, our ability to, to detect the world around us. But when you live as we do in big cities, you find yourself having to shut your senses down in order to function. And I'm always struck whenever we go filming uh, for the nature of things and they say, oh, we're going to go down to Hyde Park and, and film. I go, oh, shit, it's going to take hours then because you set up the cameras and my God, we live in the noisiest environment and we're not even aware of it, you know, because we've we we exist by shutting our senses down but we spend three quarters of our time shooting outside waiting for that goddamn plane to fly over or waiting for the car the truck that's back backing up with that beep 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 going off and uh, uh we're just not we're tuning it out and when i get on a bus which i often do and see young kids with their earbuds or even big headphones like this or going like this, you know they're telling you, I'm not interested in the world around. I'm just in my little, little world. My youngest child, uh, Sarika's um, son, he's two now, but I used to go over to Victoria and um, babysit. 
And I had a whole routine worked out where I'd walk with the, the buggy and uh, we'd go over three miles walking. And we were coming along this path and all kinds of joggers and bikers were zooming by. And I look up and there is this huge barn owl sitting in a tree. Now, I don't I have never seen many owls in my life. So I'm going, wow, and pull the buggy up, taking pictures. Not one person stopped to say, what are you looking at? Not one person saw the barn owl. And that's the world that we're living in now. We're all, you know, we've got our things to do and we're all focused. We don't care about the world around. How can you fight to protect a world if you don't care about it, if you don't love it? Is there anything you're really optimistic about? Optimism, pessimism, I, the one thing I have is hope. Many of my colleagues are saying it's too late, that we can't, we've passed too many tipping points and we can't go back. But I say, and, and I, there was a, a guy here from the States who, who put a date on when we'll all be gone. And that date was my children will live to that date. I was horrified and I was paralyzed for a week. I just said, what the hell? Because he was a scientist, his evidence was very strong. And I thought, if it's, if it, if it's, we can't do anything, what's the point? Now, I came out of it finally by saying that's, that's just crazy. We don't know enough to say it's too late. And I realized that, you know, there are a lot of climate skeptics out there that don't believe that we're affecting the climate. And they do that by deliberately ignoring the vast bulk of information and cherry picking data and coming up with a, a coherent picture that, yeah, it's bullshit. What this guy has done is cherry-picked data, the extreme edges, and made a really frightening scenario. And it's a, you know, if you look at all the data, the data are real, but it's, uh, it's he's cherry-picked the data. So I say we don't know enough. I have hope, and that has got to just drive us on. And the fact that people are saying it's so late, Yes, for Christ's sake, listen to that. We can't piss around anymore. This is really, really serious. I ain't going to be around, but I know damn well my grandchildren are going to feel the impact if we do or do not do anything now. We can't wait any longer. What gives me hope is this. The most prized species of salmon is... What? Chinook? Which is surprise. The sockeye. The sockeye is a bright red, fatty flesh. We all love sockeye. The biggest run of sockeye salmon in the world is the Fraser River. And uh, we like to get 20 million or more coming back. And in 2009, I remember vividly turning to my wife when we heard the report that just over 1 million sockeye were coming back. And I looked, I said, that's it. There isn't the biomass to get them up to the spawning beds. One year later, we got the biggest run in a hundred years. <laughs> now I use this not to show you how stupid I am. Nobody knew what happened. Nature surprised us. And I believe nature's got a lot of surprises, a lot of not very pleasant, but I think a lot of them like the sockeye. If we can pull back and give nature a chance, I think she will she will surprise us in ways we don't deserve. And so uh, I have hope that
that is based on my knowledge, we don't know that much. We're too ignorant. I love the approach of letters to my granddaughter. Can you just say a bit about the advice that you give people to follow? And They're just things that I've learned in a lifetime. You know, every kid grows up, they've got to make most of the same mistakes I made in their lives, but uh, I, I hope I can maybe avoid some of the more egregious things. Uh, but my most important lessons to my grandchildren are the hard-won lessons that my mother and father learned. They were married during the Great Depression. The Great Depression was a very, very tough time for people around the world. And because of that, they taught us, they just banged home over and over again, live within your means, save some for tomorrow, help your neighbors, you may one day need their help, share, don't be greedy. You have to work hard to make money to buy the things you need, but you don't run after money as if somehow having more money makes you a better, more important person. Those are things that they taught me and drilled into me because they learn from the hard experience. And the lessons I've learned from First Nations about our relationship with other, other creatures, about sacred water, uh, about sacred forests, all of that has been taught to me by people who've lived in those areas and who over thousands of years have learned to value those things. So they're all teachings from elders. Elders, I feel, have a credibility that comes from the fact that you're no longer being paid by anybody. So you can say it like it is. Nobody's going to fire you. You're not going to lose a promotion or a raise. Tell the truth. What have you learned in a lifetime? I've learned a hell of a lot. I've made a hell of a lot of mistakes. I've had failures. I've had a few successes. God damn it, if that's not important to pass on to my children and grandchildren, what else is? Those are priceless life lessons. So they're just lessons from an elder. What have I learned through the way that I've lived my life that might help children? Thanks for checking out the premiere of Scanna. Please rate us on iTunes, subscribe, and spread the word. Check out our news and show notes at scanna.org and the National Observer. And if you're game to be a hero and kick in a buck or more on Patreon so you can join our team and help spread the word about how to help our oceans and orcas, that would kind of rock. Also, if you want to find out how the world fell in love with orcas, check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. Available in hardcover, ebook, and a new audio edition at audible.com. Your first month of membership is free so you can test out my book as your freebie. Here's how David Suzuki wants you to make waves. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and I'm a grandfather, and I tell people you've got to be much more thoughtful about our place on this planet and what really matters uh, in our lives, what are necessities and what are simply wants. If you go to a Walmart and spend all your time there, just try thinking, of all of the things that I go there to buy, what do I really need to be happy and healthy? Any of this stuff? Think everything that we consume comes out of Mother Earth, and when we're finished with it, it will go back to the Earth. That means that we've got a big responsibility then in the way everything that we buy and sell 
is, uh, is a price that Mother Earth pays. We ought to think about that. Scanna is produced by Rain Banu, associate producer is Riley Vloswick, and audio engineer for intros and extras is Alexander Brendan Ferguson. Let's end off with a song David Suzuki recorded with local anxiety. It's called Five Simple Things from our album, Green Pieces. I know everybody's worried about the planet, and hey, that's a great thing, but don't surrender. This isn't about giving up, it's about finding solutions. That's what this song's all about, because each and every one of you knows at least one solution, okay? Each and every one of you knows at least one thing we're supposed to be doing. Five simple things to save our world, five simple things we can do. There's still time, it's not too late. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. David Suzuki. David? Oh, sorry. I was just checking my carbon footprint. I'm always looking for simple things we can do. You know, one simple thing we can all definitely do. Listen to our kids. They're inheriting this earth. They've got some great ideas. Five simple things to save our world. Five simple things we can do. There's still time, it's not too late. Who makes the future is you? Plant a garden. Don't clear. Ride your bike to work. Skip the steak, especially beef. Recycle! Don't wait for the politicians or the businessmen. Don't wait for the aliens from Mars Don't wait for the Messiah or Billy Gates We make the future, it's ours Five simple things to save our world Five simple things we can do There's still time, it's not too late Write a letter to politicians. Say no to plastic bags and water bottles. Support your local farmer. Wash your clothes in cold water. And dry them outside. Five simple things to save our world. Five simple things we can do. There's still time, it's not too late. Who makes the future is you? simple things to save our world, five simple things we can do, there's still time, it's 